Welcome to the official podcast of Comics, Beer, and Sci-Fi. Brought to you by Crystal Bright Janitorial, The Brand Barbershop, Greco Printing and Imaging, and Able Ideas. Before we get started, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow Comics, Beer, and Sci-Fi on all your favorite social media apps. Now, on with the show! Hey, this is Mark at the Great Lakes Comic Con. I'm here with Barry Lowen. You might know him playing a certain Mandalorian. How you doing, bud? I'm doing great. Yeah, happy to be here. So tell us, how did you get involved in this project? Yeah, so um, my, my life has uh, been performing my whole life. I grew up as a gymnast. I went to college for theater and journalism. And um, because of my athletic background and, and acting training, um, I used to perform for Cirque du Soleil and have done a lot of physical acting. Uh, so I got an audition for this and didn't know what I was going into. And um, next thing you know, it's like, there I am. Yeah, in the suit. Now tell, tell me, do, does it feel cool to put on that suit? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely feels cool. Um, I think Legacy Effects that made the suit uh, did such an amazing job. And because of that, the suit... I think is what makes the character and um when you put it on that you you really become him and uh i really credit that to legacy effects who made the suit and you know took the time to do such a special job now when you're shooting the scenes i know i know a lot of the uh, pedro pasquale's voice is probably done over later on but do you actually do the lines during the show yeah we um you know there's Myself, Brendan Wayne, Latif Crowder, like playing the role, and we always have a script and learn the lines and, and act the role. Uh, so, yeah, we, we definitely have the dialogue to interact with the other actors and, and still just to make the characters as true to himself as possible. Are you going to be in season three? Um, I, I'm not sure if I'm even allowed to say that. Yeah, we, no problem. We, we, we get tight, tight reins on us. Yeah. What do you got uh, coming out uh, or coming down the pipeline other than The Mandalorian? Yeah, um, I I went to college for uh, theater and broadcast journalism. And so I've actually been doing quite a bit of um, broadcasting recently. And so that's been something I'd wanted to do for a long time. And uh, so I have been starting down that just to try it out and see how it goes. Can you tell us uh, what it is and where people can find it? Sure, yeah. I'm... I'm uh, I've, I moved away from home when I was like right out of high school. Um, and so I recently kind of decided I wanted to be a little closer to my family and, and, and everyone I love. So I'm originally from Lake Charles, Louisiana, and I've been back there working for, uh, our local station as a news anchor. And so you can, you can see me doing the news on KPLC in Lake Charles, Louisiana. We are definitely going to YouTube some of those clips. Yeah, it's uh, it's it was uh, it was a very unexpected change in my life, but it's been uh, really great and um, just a lot of fun, a lot of learning. I have a lot more respect for everyone in the news and broadcasting industry, and I just something I've, I've I wanted to do, and that's why I went to college for it. It's just I finally had the opportunity to give it a try pretty exciting to hear well anyways barry it was a pleasure to speak with you i doubt this is mark with barry lowen he's the mandalorian behind the helmet 
Forget that Pedro Pisquel guy. He's the guy. Hey, this is Mark at the Great Lakes Comic Con. I'm here with Dorian Kinji. You may know him from a few shows like Stranger Things, The Book of Boba Fett. How you doing, sir? Good, thank you. I'm super happy to be here. Tell us, how did you get into this business? Um, it's interesting. I wasn't wanting to necessarily be in it initially because I saw what my parents were going through in good and kind of challenging ways because it's not an easy business to get into. So I didn't know if I really wanted to pursue it. But it kind of fell into it, not trying to do the stunt pun, but, you know, the, it's a family business. It's something that was normal to me. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll kind of do what they do. But at the same time, you don't realize that you can't just be, uh, you can't treat it lightly, right? You do have to perform. You do have to put work and time and effort in, whether it's acting or stunts and training. So I grew to just really appreciate what they did over time as I got older and then just committed to doing it. What was saying? What was some of the advice your parents gave you when you decided to go into this business? Uh, Dad was trying to get me to do like every sport and every training thing you ever could, whether it's horseback riding to quick draw to swimming to basketball to archery. And then Mom was like, "Are you, honey, do you really want to do movies?" <laughs> that was her thing. Are you sure about this? And I'm like, uh, "Yeah." So, but she knew you know, how, how challenging it could be in certain ways, but then there is a big reward later if you really just kind of try to keep, you know, a good head on your shoulders and know that, hey, it's just a job. Uh, just appreciate what you do, appreciate the fans, and it'll be a good circle of life. And for those of you who don't know, you know, he comes from, you know, a big, you know, Hollywood legendary family. His dad is a legendary stuntman, Henry, and his mom was Lindsay Wagner, is Lindsay Wagner is when Lindsay Wagner still alive? She was the, was the bionic woman, and she probably still is in a lot of people's hearts. Absolutely, yeah. They never remade it successfully. They tried to do one spinoff of a series, and it didn't even make the pilot, I think, and that was it. So uh, she's just got this iconic, you know, stamp on our you know Hollywood history, and it's she's rightfully deserved to have it. So. And she's a great lady, and she goes to conventions, too, so it's a beautiful thing. Like oh, is it right here, right here in the middle, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, tell us, how did you get involved with the Book of Boba Fett? Um, I worked with a company called Legacy Effects, and they make, right, all different kinds of suits. They make, like, armor for movies and creatures, and they ended up making a lot of the stuff, like the Mando suits for the Star Wars shows. So in that, I'd worked for them on a previous other films, and they sometimes have an opportunity to throw people's names in the hat based off of body types and personal experience of working with them on other shows. And they said they need a tall, skinny guy <laughs> to be an alien and do this stuff. And so my name got thrown in the hat for that and then end up having a Zoom call with Filoni and Vavro and Bob's your uncle, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now tell me, what do you got other coming down the pipeline um you know we just gotta wait and see what happens there's all kinds of stuff that's in the works and i just gotta wait for uh even if i had something too depending on what it is i might not be able to say it so yeah we'll see what what things come down the pipe <laughs> we're excited to see what you know what comes so anyways this is mark at the great lakes comic con i thank you for speaking with us dorian and uh we'll see you soon Hey everybody, it's Nick with Comic Spear and Sci-Fi. I'm at the Great Lakes Comic Con, and I'm with legendary comic book artist Keith Pollard, who I grew up loving so much of his artwork. Keith, thanks for talking to us today. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, you've come to a lot of these Great Lakes shows. How do you like them? 
I've been with them since the beginning. Uh, they've evolved into this uh, massive show now. I love doing this. Yeah, I remember when it was a much, much smaller show as well. I've been coming, because we, we've been coming since the beginning as well. Um, so let's get some history from you. How did you get involved in comic book art? Well, I've always wanted to draw comics. I, I started out drawing when I was six years old. My father taught me. And uh, when I discovered comic books, Superman and the others, Batman and Flash and the rest, I just gravitated to them, you know, the flashiness of the storytelling and so forth. So I practiced that. And uh, as I went through school, I, like many students out there, wasn't the best student in the world. He was he drawing pictures exactly. on the margins like I was. Exactly. And I decided at that time that I wanted to be a comic book artist. Uh, as I grew up, went to college, so forth. I began doing samples of comic art. I began uh, researching the, co the artists who drew comics, you know. Uh, I started to become a fan of Marvel comics because they were a bit different. Let me just back you up just a few seconds. Now, you said when you got into the DC characters initially, I assume this was in the 50s before Stan Lee started doing all the... So, okay, now let's go... So those characters initially inspired you. Uh, were there any specific artists at that time, or were you kind of too much of a kid to really appreciate, uh, you know, Carmen Infantino or some of... As I said, as I started uh, uh, investigating comics, uh, researching them, I... Uh, I found that I love the uh, the artwork of Gil Kane and, and Kurt Swan over at DC. But around that time, also, Marvel was just forming. They had just come out with their first couple of books. Uh, I wasn't too interested in, you know, tales of, of Too Astonished and all that. But eventually they came out with their first superhero, Spider-Man, as I recall. Amazing Fantasy 15. And Do you remember getting that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was in high school myself at the time, and I related to the character. Sure. He was a crazy character, a loner, you know, didn't fit in. Sure. Yeah. Everything I thought I was. All of us, yeah. And that's why he was so popular. Right. And uh, I began doing samples later on. Thoughts. Uh, I discovered that they had what is called a comic cop. At the time, it was called the Detroit Triple Fanfare. And I went down to that. I met this band down here, May Marvell Jones. Uh, we formed a partnership and decided we were going to take our samples and we're going to show them to DC and Marvel and see where it goes. We got hired. <laughs> That's how I. How did you perfect your individual art style? Were there certain art, you mentioned a couple of artists, did you initially sort of try to copy their style or did you just take some influence from them and then come up with your own style? Well, in any, uh, all artists draw the examples of other artists' work. First I imitated, then I began to draw it on my own. You know, but I would always, you know, in the beginning, I had comic books in front of me, and I tried to draw exactly like the artists I liked, like Gil Kane or Kurt Swan. Then, after what I felt confident, I knew what I was doing. That's when I put their comic books away and started drawing my own. 
when you were learning to draw, did you draw them? Did you draw in the so-called Marvel style, where you'd start with a stick figure and then flesh it out? Or did you eventually have to change to that style? No, I, you developed a type of style that they like. You know, it is a Marvel stock, but uh, you do it your way. You know, it, uh, just like Jack Kirby does not look anything like Gil Kane's work. Uh, mine did not look like anybody else's work, but it had that style. The house style at Marvel, I bet, when I started, was Jack Kirby's. He uh, was a major influence. He was doing all, pretty much all their major books at the time. So there was, it would be who to try and look as much like Kirby as man. But there were other artists there, George Tuska, Gene Colwin, all of them, nothing like Jack Kirby. Right, that's true. <laughs> so were there any basic rules that you had to follow? Uh, you could do your own style, but were there, any, were there any ground rules as a Marvel artist you had to stay like that? Okay. You know, it, that's what separated Marvel at that time from DC. DC told a quieter story. Right. But Marvel was flashy. It yes. was, they uh, pre did the foreshortening, you know, with a fist in the face kind of thing. It really draw the fist big and the body really small, you know. I think in the How to Draw Comics, the Marvel Way book, it says the name of the game is Action. Is the name of one of the chapters. And, and sir, what year did you start at Marvel? I think it was 74. Okay, and eventually you were doing uh, Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four simultaneously and Thor. And which writers were you working on? Oh, which writers were I? Uh, Amazing Spider-Man, you were probably 160, 170, 180, 190, around those issues, I if I'm correct. And you did a lot of covers, too. It started with uh, Spider-Man 186. Spider-Man 186 was Spider-Man leaping out at you with after figures in the background. And then how long did you stay with Marvel and what did you do afterwards? Oh, I stayed with Marvel well into the late 80s uh, with a brief stint at DC at the, uh, somewhere in that period. Uh, by the 90s, I was basically doing independent work with uh, Various comic companies, uh, I can't even remember here about. Uh, I'd say 1999, I just kind of switched careers. I always wanted to learn how computers work. And I ran across an ad. Oh, no, I didn't run across an ad. My friend Arvell, who was also into computers, he uh, pointed out that... Uh, a company called Tech Team at the time was looking for technicians, and they were desperate to get them. Uh, they were willing to hire anybody to work their help desk, you know, telephone help desk, and they would train. And you, would, you know, the salary was started off. I, you know, I think it was twelve dollars an hour. And I said, "Why not? I'll, I'll give it a shot." And uh, I, I worked for them for ten years, you know, becoming. Uh, fairly proficient with, with computers. Can you tell us, uh, was there any noticeable difference working at DC as opposed to Marvel? I know you said you weren't there very long, but I was just curious what the, there was an atmosphere difference. Uh, in the beginning, when I first showed my work at DC, it was unusual for me, because when I went over 
to their their offices, I noticed that everybody wore suits and ties. They were very restrictive. Uh, they had a set way of doing things, and they, uh, they felt they ruled the comic world at that time. When I went over to Marvel, it was more relaxed. People dressed for me, you know, sweatshirts and, and blue jeans, and, you know, they kicked back. We had a bullpen where people not only did their comic artwork in, they ate there, they slept there. <laughs> yeah, it, it was very much a, a family type situation at Marvel where it was very structured over at DC. When I ended up working at DC some 10 years later, DC had pretty much rolled it themselves into another version of Mars. Everybody was very casual, very made back, and a lot of Marvel artists, writers had already been moved over there, so it wasn't much difference. That makes sense. Um, lastly, I just wanted to ask, um, were there any, which personalities at either company ha are most uh, significant to you? Like, like, who did you cross paths with that had an impact? I mean, anywhere for anybody from Roy Thomas to... Pretty much everybody. You, know, you can start with Stan Lee. Stan was a, a salesman, entrepreneur, con man. He was everything. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We tried to, to a one degree or another, model ourselves after him. Uh, his philosophy of, of doing comics you know, pretty much affected everybody. You know? Just about everybody up there, from Tony Isabella to... Uh, Saul Harrison and they all plays an important part. And George Byrne came along at that time, and George Perez, I'm sorry, John Byrne and George Perez were big artists at the time, Ross Andrew, uh, all classic people. Um, did you have a favorite character you liked to work on and a least favorite character you liked to work on? Least favorite? <laughs> Never had that question before. Uh, Spider-Man, uh, as I mentioned, was the one that I wanted to work on the most. Uh, from there, it was Fantastic Four and Thor. They were all favorites of mine. Iron Man was another. Least favorite. Like, I don't know if I had a least favorite character. Well, so. I mean, if you drew a team book, you might get tired of drawing a whole team after a while. But, I mean, you got to draw a panel, so whether it's people or buildings or whatever, you still got to do the work. Well, I, being an artist... I found whatever character I was working on, I'm trying to make him look the best he can do the, and be as dynamic as possible and impress the audience, you know. So they all become your favorite characters. That's, I'm sorry, one last question. Uh, when I read about, like, Doctor Strange or Spider-Man, it seemed like Ditko did a lot of the plotting, or Kirby claimed to have done a lot of the plotting with his art and said Stan is taking a little bit too much credit. Now, I'm not asking about that. I'm just asking about your when you were working on the books, were you more of the storyteller or did you follow the script more and just create the imagery? A team. Okay. Uh, certain writers tried to be a little more restricting. I used to work with a, a writer named Doug Woods. Yeah. Who, uh, he would type a 36-page plot for a 20-page comic book. You know, it, it's almost impossible for an artist to fit all that he wanted 
into one book. So we had to get, call him up. We have give and take over the phone and, you know, we would work out what would best be suited. I see. With the limitations I have and the limitations he has, we, we put them together and made it work. Oh. Um, that's the way it is at Marvel. It was always, a, a, what would you call it, a conference with a plot. The artists and the writer working together trying to come up with an idea. It's been a pleasure, sir, talking to you. And I will be right back to purchase. I have this issue. I love it. Plus, it's Motown. I'll be right back. Hey, this is Mark at the Great Lakes Comic Con. I'm here with legendary Dan DiDio. You know, right? You, you know him from television and DC Comics. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great. This is my first time here, so this is a really great, well, great time actually. I've had a lot of fun. You know, it's funny. We're in Tampa. It was 89 degrees, way too hot. Much better to come to Detroit in 20 degree weather. So thank you for that. It's a pleasure that you're here. So tell us, how did you get involved when you in television? And then you're pro and then you progress to comics. Oh my gosh! You know what it is? I I, uh, I actually started at CBS as a page. I was one of the CBS page in 1981. Okay, so I started as a page at CBS. I worked there, worked for the news division for a short period of time. Then I moved over to ABC. I was over in publicity for a while with the soap operas. Moved out to LA. I worked in children's television. From there, then I worked for a company in Vancouver as a story editor for the first computer animated TV show called Reboot. Then I helped them develop some new series. And then after, got a little tired of after TV after a while, and then I made my way over to D.C. So it's, it's a normal career path. <laughs> that was in the 80s, and that was a great time for D.C. Oh, uh, was that, you know what? No, I was saying TV, I was in the 80s to 2000. I joined D.C. in 2000. Oh, my mistake. My bad. 2002 was a great time for D.C. because I just got there. Uh, the, yeah, that was a renaissance. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so tell us, what was one of your favorite projects with DC uh, what, during your time? You know, it's funny. You, when you do shows like this, people bring back a lot of old comics, and you start to remember the different things you did. But honestly, one of the sweetest times for me was when I was working on the period from Infinite Crisis, which is about 2005, 2006, uh, to the 52 Weekly series, which we did right after that. And I feel... That's when we really had our creative energies really in sync and unison, that the entire company felt like it was working together. And I, I don't think we could do better books than we did at that particular time. I'm always most proud of that period. But we've done so much other stuff that I'm proud of also. So it's, it's always hard to choose. But I, I think you always remember that first moment when you, you, could, you achieve what you set out to do as the one you remember the best. I remember seeing your, your interviews a lot on a lot of the DC comic animated films. Yes. What was your experience doing those? I actually wasn't involved in that, but what we were doing is we were giving the background on all those. Things. Yes. So we always gave all the backfill on, on, on what the characters were and who. And you're never looking for a direct adaptation, but you want to make sure they capture the proper essence of who those characters are from there. And when you do those DVDs, um, it's a lot of fun because you get a chance to explain the logic and thought that went into the creation of these characters to really help fill out and round out people's understanding who they are and hopefully appreciate what they just saw much better. You know, but I, I always laugh one time. I was in a cab in Chicago with Jim Lee and everybody knows Jim and I always, I could, I could move it in and out of the crowd pretty quietly and we were talking 
And the camera driver stops the car and goes, you, I know who you are. And I think they were asking Jim. And he goes, you're Dan DiDio. And I said, how do you know me? And he goes, that voice, it's from the DVDs. I hear you on all my DVDs. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I guess there's a lot to be gained from those DVD uh, things that we did. Those animated movies are just awesome. Some of the best stuff DC's put out. I, I, I think they did such a great job because, I, like I said, I think when you look at the animated movies, I think that's when DC Comics was more intimately involved in, in a lot of the formation of the ideas. And then also you had, on the animation side, a lot of the animators were fans of the characters too. So there's a lot of love put on those blings, and it shows up at every one of those shows. And then you have Bruce Tim, and that pretty much sells it all. <laughs> So, what are you working on now? Well, right now, um, once I left DC, I was looking for something to do, but not in the same level of working on a major company. Uh, so I sat down with Frank Miller, and both Frank Miller and I decided to go out and start to publish our own material. So Frank and I created our own small company called Frank Miller Presents Comics, and we're doing a small line of books that we feel is a nice eclectic mix, but really capture the essence of what comics should be. Uh, and Frank's reinvigorated by doing this. I'm super excited by it. I've gone from being from one of the majors to one of the indies, and we're having a blast. So. I get a chance to actually write and really get hands-on in these books in a way that I haven't done even by my time at DC. Dan, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope hopefully you have a great con and a great experience here in the Detroit area. So far, so good. It's been great. Can't wait for to meet the crowd and meet the people here. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks. And this is Mark at the Great Lakes Comic Con with Dan DiDio. Get it right, folks. DiDio. <laughs> Hey, this is Mark at the Great Lakes Comic Con. I'm here with legendary comic book inker Mike Royer. How you doing, sir? I'm having a ball. This is a great show, and it is still to this day surprising that people walk up who only know me as Jack Kirby or Russ Manning's inker. They don't know that I wrote and drew Hanna-Barbera comic books, things of that nature, and 21 years I was a character artist, product designer for Walt Disney character merchandise. Yeah, we know we're we're aware of that. Now tell me, how did you get started doing working with Gold Key on their Walt Disney line? Um, I was an Edgar Rice Burroughs fan, and went to the World Science Fiction Convention in Oakland or Berkeley in 1964. Met Camille Castis, who edited a fanzine called Herbdom, and I told him I loved it, Russ Manning's artwork, and he says, "Well, I'm going to go visit him. I'll tell him about you. Send him some samples." So I sent Russ some samples two months later, because he was very busy. He wrote me back and he simply said, if I ever needed an assistant, you would be perfect. So I packed up my family, moved to Southern California, knocked on his door and bless his heart, he gave me work. Wow. And as a result of working with Russ, there was a period in the first couple of years that Western Publishing, the Gold Key comic provider, um, wanted more work from Russ. And he said, the only way that I can give you more work is to have Mike working with me. I cannot pay him a living wage. So they called me and said, how would you like to come in and pick up some work? So I, I never had to show samples. They just said, come in and pick up some work because they wanted more work from Russ Manning. And the first thing I did for uh, Western Publishing was a Superboy frame tray puzzle, which I drew. And then it was painted by Wilson or one of the painters at Western Publishing in New York City. Wow. Now, then, then you did some of the Tarzan stuff, right? Well, I uh, uh, worked with him on the comic books. Uh, they Dad was a big collector and fan of that let stuff. Let me draw the Tarzan Twins issue. 
and which has some good art in it and some bad art, but I was learning. Um, when Russ finally got the syndicated comic strip, I assisted him on that in the beginning and then returned many years later after Jack's because I just left, I stopped working with Jack only because I wanted to stretch other muscles, you know. But how did you get hooked up with Jack? Uh, my first wife and kids were AAU swimmers, competitors, and they were at a nightly workout at the local junior college. I'm walking from the studio, which I had built at the back of the garage. The phone is ringing in the kitchen. I run in and go, hello, and it's Mike Royer. This is Jack Kirby. Alex Sulth says you're a pretty good inker. So he called me. And you worked with him on that fourth world uh, material. Yeah, I, I actually worked, did work for Jack for 10 years, but only nine years of it is the fourth world and then the later Marvel stuff. So people think that's when I started. When I say 10 years, they start doing the math. And it's like, well, I did all kinds of stuff with Jack. And what he found in me was what he was looking for. Somebody on the West Coast who could ink. And then the bonus, the fact that I could letter. So he would be totally in charge of his, his work. So when he left Marvel and went to D.C., I got a phone call from Maggie Thompson saying, hey, what's this I hear that Jack has left? And I said, uh, he has. He left Marvel. He says, I don't know anything about it. Then I, later I got a call from Jack saying, well, you probably heard the news. You were supposed to be part of the package. But they, did, they said, who's this Royer kid? It's because they had to deal with Vince Coletta, you know. And so it took the first four issues of the Fourth World books for him to convince them that he wanted his anchor. And so they said yes, because I'm sure they figured that I would fail. And to their chagrin, I didn't. I am the only anchor that ever kept up with everything Jack produced. That's incredible. That's, uh, that's something to be proud of. People have told me that they witnessed a conversation once between uh, Joe Sinnott and Frank Giacoya when they were trying to figure out, how does that kid ink three pages a day? <laughs> then, then after you worked with Jack, you went back, to, you started working for Disney. Well, uh, just before Disney, uh, I started working with Russ again on the Tarzan and Star Wars strip. So for uh, 13 to 20 weeks, I worked on both strips, totally inked and lettered everything. And uh, he was in a, in, a, in, a, in a story already in the Tarzan Sunday pages. But when he started the very last continuity, he signed all the pages, Manning and Royer, which was nice. And the 13 weeks of Star Wars... Uh, I inked that, but uh, I just wasn't getting the body of work from Russ that was the living I wanted to make. And I got a phone call from a buddy that says, hey, do up some samples. They're looking for somebody at Disney in their foreign strip division. So I went in and picked up a couple of assignments, and they called me one day and said, how would you like to come in and talk about your life or something, you know? And so I said, I thought to myself, oh, they're going to give me a regular gig inking one of the strips for King Features. I went in, and the guy says, how would you like to come on staff? And as the hard-boiled detective would say in a radio show in 1942, in less time than it takes to tell, I said, yes. The rest was history. So I was on staff and creative services for consumer products. Which is, that was great stuff. And... This is the guy who always wanted to do, when he grew up, draw stuff like Tarzan, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, you know. 
and I found out that my true ability was funny animals. People have asked me, were you influenced by Jack when you went to Disney? Absolutely. In my head, Jack was always over my shoulder saying, do it your way, tell a story. And everything I drew, even if it was one character, two characters, it's like something right, taken right out of a story. And so the best creative work I ever did was at Disney. And the last seven years where primarily was an independent contractor, I, I quit the staff job. I didn't like that some of the politics. And within 36 hours, the Disney source called and said, please work for us. You don't have to come in. You can fax everything. You'll never be out of work. So for seven and a half years, it was the most creative and financially rewarding time of my entire career. They bought everything I sent them, whether they produced it or not. And uh, I did some large group scenes that when, they, when I took them in, the art director would say, damn, these are so good, we ought to put these into print and sell them for $5,000 a portfolio. And I went, does that mean I can rewrite my invoice? And he says, no. <laughs> But I, you know, writers will say that, uh, well, how do you do your books? And they say, well, at some point, the character just takes over and writes it for me. You've heard that, haven't you? It's a natural process. Well, I worked a whole bunch of scenes that were like 16 by 22 with all of the Pooh characters with the exception of uh, Gopher. And I just, in my rough, just took the sheet of paper and just started in the center. And then when I was finished, I sat back and went, damn, did I do this? Because it worked from a design standpoint. It wasn't hinky. It wasn't weird. It was, it worked. And I'll swear that it's Jack behind me saying, do it your way, tell a story. And this damn scene tells a story. Every one of the characters is doing, making a homemade Christmas presents. I did three of them. And, uh, and even though they were plush animals, plush toys, I did once a big group scene where they're out camping. Who is in the background can't figure out how to put the, the tent together. Uh, big, uh, Tigger's in the foreground with a pile of burnt matches. He can't get, he's striking the match on this room and he can't get the fire started. Uh, Eeyore's got bags full of uh, twigs and stuff for the fire. And in the background, running through the bushes, you see Piglet running with a roll of toilet paper and a shovel. <laughs> it's, it, it was all a story. I mean. Pooh, a bear of small brain, is can't put the tent together. You know, Tigger, who thinks he's pretty special, uh, can't even light a fire. And of course, Eeyore is a beast of burden, unfortunately. And dimensional comic strip. And uh, so, uh, I discovered that my bag was Bigfoot. And surprisingly, doing Bigfoot made me a better artist with regular straight stuff. Now tell us, uh, have you been working on anything lately? Uh, thanks to fans of my work, I do some commissions now and then. I do some recreations, but I don't anymore. I do not do a slavish reproduction. So that when I sign them at the bottom, instead of saying recreated such and such, I go revisited by because I do little changes, little things different. Uh, especially when I've got, there's, they, somebody has me do a page, lots of those speed lines. It's like making them exactly the same 
will drive you crazy. So they get the speed lines, but they're not exactly the same speed lines because it's, it's the way you do them. And to duplicate how the ink runs together from the thick to the thin, it's different. And to, well, anyway, no longer do slavish recreations. Somebody sent me once a pencil drawing that Jack did, a pinup of, of uh, is it Prince Tufton and uh, Commandy? Well, it was a nice drawing, but I went back to the first appearance of Tufton, and it's now Jack's drawing, but I put one of the other legs that works better if it's to just the single pose, and he's wearing the uniform and the epaulets and the pistol holster that he had in his first appearance, which is not in the drawing that Jack did. But you take an artist that creates these successful characters, and there's an evolution, and eventually... It's the character, but it doesn't have exactly everything he had the first time you saw him. But to me, I wanted Tufton to be Tufton with the with the epaulets and all all the other stuff that I just can't help myself. Anyways, Mike, we don't want to take up too much of your time, but it was a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, hopefully you have a great convention and a lot of people coming to see you. Well, guys, I'm flattered and honored that you wanted to talk to me. Anytime, anytime. Again, this is Mark at the Great Lakes Comic Con with this legendary inker, Mike Royer. Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko? That's it for this episode of the Comics Beer and Sci-Fi Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.